<laughs> well, today we have a, a topics topics that are very complex. Okay, we are gonna simply do. Huh? Sorry, we didn't finish nephrotic syndrome. Oh, thank you. <laughs> nephrotic. Thank you for that. Nephrotic syndrome. Okay, the one important thing when we uh, have our patient and we suspect a kidney disease is put the patient in a box, nephritic or nephrotic. Always having in mind that sometimes there are overlaps, okay, diseases that typically appear as nephrotic and may appear as nephritic or vice versa. Always remember medicine has these characteristics. And the patient with nephrotic syndrome will have more proteinuria, okay, more than 3.5 grams per day proteinuria. They are not going to have too much hematuria. Uh, remember the hematuria is explained because of the damage to the glomerular uh, capillaries. Okay, the cells have to pass through the glomerulus. If the glomerulus is damaged and the red blood cells are going to go out, okay, when the red blood, blood cells move out, they get damaged. Okay, we are going to have broken red blood cells, damaged red blood cells, and we are going to have the casts made of red blood cells indicating nephritis. Nephritic syndrome, okay, when you have a normal red blood cells, that is simply hematuria, that may be from the, an infection or from a stone, from the bladder, from a tumor. And in the case of uh, nephrotic syndrome, there is no damage to the, to the capillaries, 
Okay, but here the damage is in the basement membrane or in the podocytes, the ones that have the negative charges that should stop the proteins. Okay, so the characteristic here is going to be a huge proteinuria. The liver is unable to keep up with the protein loss. Okay, the liver can make more uh, proteins than the ones that are being uh, lost. So patients are going to develop hypoalbuminemia with a lower oncotic pressure in the blood leading to edema. So edema and proteinuria are going to be the, uh, the most important fissures. Also, patients are going to lose HDL, high-density lipoproteins, okay, because these are the tiny ones. Okay, if you remember the uh, diagrams that represent the different lipoproteins in the blood, okay, we have the VLDLs that are huge. Okay, then we have the IDLs, intermediate, smaller, LDL are smaller, and the high density are very tiny. So they are able to pass. So we are going to lose more HDL than any other proteins. We are going to lose antibodies. We are going to lose different uh, coagulation factors. That's why these patients have these lipidemias, okay, a higher uh, ratio of LDL to HDL. They are going to have some clotting disorders as well. Uh, we are going to study some conditions. Okay, one of them is minimal change disease. The name tells us that it's not a very bad condition. And the clinical practice also tells us so. Okay, this is the most common cause of nephrotic syndrome in children. Okay, when you have a kid with nephrotic syndrome, that's the first thing that comes to mind. May appear in adults as well. Okay, uh, in children, the prognosis is very good. In adults, may not be so, okay, because it's not normal that this condition appears in an adult unless they have something else or this is going to progress to something not as benign. Now, it can be idiopathic, can be secondary to different medications. Notice, again, lithium is in every list. Okay, what are the secondary effects of lithium? Everything. Okay, everything is a secondary effect of lithium. Now, could be associated to Hodgkin lymphoma, and leukemias, pancreatic cancer. So, remember the age at which these diseases may appear. Okay, for example, lymphomas, leukemias tend to appear in younger people. Hodgkin, for example, is uh, more characteristic in younger uh, as acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Okay, pancreatic cancer is typical in the adult. That tells you that if you have a kid or a young person with minimal change disease, okay, you know that this is a benign condition that is self-limited, that is going to uh, resolve with some corticosteroids and some measures, but don't forget to look for this stuff. Okay, do a good physical exam looking for lymph nodes, blood tests looking for abnormalities in the blood, ask for bleeding or for fever, for recurrent infections, for different uh, signs of leukemia, lymphoma, and in adults, okay, look for the possibility of a pancreatic cancer, for example. Now, the pathogenesis in most of these nephrotic conditions is damage to the podocytes or the basement membrane. Okay, we lose the negative charges because of the cytokines, because of the inflammation. Okay, the name minimal change disease, uh, besides the good prognosis and the self-limited uh, uh, characteristics of the condition, is because in a biopsy, okay, if you do a light microscopy, 
nothing is going to be uh, uh, found. It's going to look like a normal kidney. Now, if we do an electronic microscopy, is when we see the abnormal findings. Simply, the podocytes show the damage. There is a flattening or uh, something called effacement of the podocytes. That is the only thing that appears there. Okay, so don't forget that a light microscopy biopsy is not going to show anything, so it's, there is no need to do it because we are not going to see anything. Okay, you're not going to be doing biopsies to a kid. Okay, just to confirm that this is a, a minimal change disease. The best way of proving that that is minimal change disease is simply give corticosteroids and it's going to get better. Okay? That confirms that there is nothing wrong with that. So they are going to have the characteristics of the uh, nephrotic syndrome, edema, proteinuria, some microscopic hematuria, lipiduria, hyperlipidemia or dyslipidemias, hypoalbuminemia, and they may have, depending on the severity, okay, they may have uh, hypertension, but that is not very common. Okay, the more severe cases, may develop hypertension, okay, uh, more severe damage and progression to kidney failure or end-stage renal disease. Okay, then most patients notice have only one episode and nothing else. Okay, there you have the electronic microscopy. Notice how the podocytes Okay, look in the normal kidney, forming this slit uh, filtration barrier. Okay, and they are flat in the case of the minimal change disease. The light microscopy, as I said, is not going to show anything there. Now, here we have other causes of nephrotic syndrome that are not as benign. Focal segmental glomerulosclerosis is one. Okay, when we are studying these and when we have to answer questions about this condition, sometimes uh, it's confusing because the clinical presentation is the same, nephrotic syndrome, but now we have to look at certain uh, details okay, to try to, to get our most likely diagnosis in a vignette. For example, this condition is more common in uh, blacks and Hispanics okay, rather than Caucasians or whites. What do we find if we make a biopsy, like microscopy? Well, we are going to see something that is described in the name. Okay, we are going to see segmental sclerosis, focal sclerosis. Segmental means part of the glomerulus, not the entire glomerulus. And focal, some glomeruli. Okay, so we are going to see healthy glomeruli and some focal glomeruli with part of them sclerotic, fibrotic. Okay, that is the meaning, scarring in different areas in the kidney. Okay, there are some idiopathic cases. There is a familial form, okay, but may be associated to some conditions that you see there in the list. Okay, HIV infection, heroin, hepatitis B, okay, different other chronic conditions in the kidney or chronic infections, chronic pyelonephritis also related to sickle cell disease, hypertension, obesity. Okay, there is a wide variety of associations there. Now the pathogenesis, podocyte injury. This is the basic pathogenesis of every nephrotic uh, syndrome. 
Yeah. <coughs> lost the, the connection with that. So there you have what it, what it means, uh, the, the lesion in the focal segmental glomerular sclerosis. Notice that it's just a section of the glomerulus. Okay, it's carrying in a segment of the glomerulus, and this is going to appear in some glomeruli, not in others. Okay, and this is the, the pathogenesis here, damage to the podocyte. They are going to detach. They are going to under, undergo apoptosis. Okay, when we have a lower uh, number of podocytes, the uh, basement membrane is going to be exposed, glomerular basement membrane. There is going to be a proliferation of the cells in the mesangium, the cells in, the, in between the glomerular loops. Okay, they grow, they divide. They're going to have leakage of proteins into the Bowman space. These proteins, okay, uh, collagen, for example, fibrin, are going to get deposited there, forming this uh, scarring. Okay, that starts being segmented, and of course, with time, this may progress to the entire glomerulus. Now, we're going to do a biopsy, and we see that. There you have a real biopsy. Notice how the upper half of the glomerulus is, or looks normal. The lower half is fibrotic, scarring. Okay, there is obliteration, fusion of the podocytes, and we may see foam cells, fat-containing cells. Okay, and what do we see there? Deposits of immunoglobulins, complement, fibrin. Now, another thing that may appear in patients with nephrotic syndrome is lipiduria. Okay, they are losing lipids in the urine. Sometimes we may see what we call fat oval casts. Okay, that is another characteristic of nephrotic syndrome. So in the nephritic, we are more likely to see red blood cell casts. In the nephrotic, fat fatty casts or fat oval casts. Another cast that is important to remember is the hyaline cast. Okay, now that we are talking about this, because this is something that appears many, uh, very frequently in questions about uh, the kidney. Okay, the hyaline cast is something that is totally normal, may appear in any healthy patient. When we wake up, and we are dehydrated, not, not drinking for eight hours if we sleep eight hours. Okay, it's, we are likely to have some little casts as a result of the dehydration. Okay, they are described as hyaline casts. That's nothing abnormal. Okay, then we have the muddy brown epithelial cell casts. That is the, the, the one that appears in acute tubular necrosis. Okay, the red blood cells in nephritis, nephritis, the white blood cell casts in infections, okay, pyelonephritis. We have the lipid casts, fat oval casts of the nephrotic syndrome. And then we have also the eosinophilic casts, okay, these are associated with Benz-Jones proteins that appear in multiple myeloma, also known as Benz-Jones casts. Now, the next condition in the nephrotic part is membranous nephropathy. Okay, this is more common in whites, in Caucasians. Okay, and it's a condition that is more common in males, Caucasians. Okay, notice the age, 30 to 50 years of age. And it's associated, can be idiopathic as well, but it's associated with hepatitis B or C. 
and other conditions, syphilis, malaria, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, also medications on, and malignancies. Okay, so when you have your patients, uh, just imagine you have vignettes, one of the most important things is the age. Okay, young people, likely minimal chance disease, Hispanics, blacks, focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, whites, more likely to be membranous nephropathy. Notice that hepatitis B is common in both as an association. In membranous nephropathy, we have to look for hepatitis C as well. Okay, and rule out different things like malignancies or medications that they may be taking, different autoimmune conditions, inflammatory conditions. So here what we have is the position of immune complexes. Okay, in the subepithelial space between the podocyte and the glomerular basement membrane. These are autoantibodies that deposit there. Okay, these autoantibodies, these complexes, when they deposit there, they activate the complement. Notice that here we have activation of the last part of the complement from C5 to C9, which is the MAC or membrane attack complex. Okay, that leads to recruitment of inflammatory cells, inflammatory reaction, free radicals, proteases, breaking down the glomerulus, damage to the basement membrane of the glomerulus. Okay, and again, we have the GBM and the podocyte damage, increasing the permeability to proteins and degeneration of the nephrotic scene. Okay, so when you study the pathophysiology, notice that the podocyte and the glomerular basement membrane are damaged in all of them. Okay, but for example, notice the difference in focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. C3 complement is the first part of the complement. Okay, and in membranous nephropathy is the last part of the complement. Okay, what makes the difference? Now, if you do a biopsy, okay, we are going to see the complexes deposited under the endothelium, okay, the ones that we described before, and they are going to create a pattern that is described as spike and dome appearance. Okay, notice how it appears on the, all the way to the right, okay, in the far right, you can see the, what they mean with spike and dome aspect. All of these are the immune deposits there. There's a thickening of the basement membrane, as you can see, as well. And when we imagine that the basement membrane is thicker, we tend to not understand, what well, if it's thicker, how it will allow the proteins to move through? Okay, because it's not the thickness, it's simply the loss of the negative charges. What will let the, or permit this heavy protein? Then we have diabetic nephropathy, okay, something that we studied in endocrine and, of course, it's always good to mention because it's a very, very common condition that may appear in patients with type 1 or type 2 diabetes. Okay, when we receive a patient with type 1 diabetes, probably they have nothing, they don't have any damage yet because they've been for a very short time with the condition, but patients with type 2, don't forget, there are many undiagnosed people, so they are likely to present with retinopathy and also some degree of uh, 
peripheral neuropathy, nephropathy, etc. They will have different uh, degrees of proteinuria. Okay, so people with diabetes that are poorly treated with the poor control of the blood sugar levels are going to have a progression to end-stage renal disease. Probably they are going to die of cardiovascular disease, not of anything related with kidney failure. But it's our task to try to prevent the progression, to delay the progression of this condition. They are going to have a decline in the GFR, okay, the hypertension. Okay, notice that this condition, the nephropathy develops after 10 to 20 years in diabetes type 1 or 5 to 10 years of diabetes type 2. So it's going to be present already during the diagnosis in type 2 diabetes. Okay, there are different ethnicities that have more risk, for example, Native Americans, followed by Hispanics, Blacks, and Whites. And we use the ACE inhibitors, ARBs, trying to reduce the glomerular filtration. At the beginning, don't forget, there is a hyperfiltration in the glomerulus that will damage or accelerate the damage. And that's the reason for us using these medications. Okay, this is going to develop by the persistent hyperglycemia. Okay, there is also damage associated with the glycation of the proteins in the glomerulus, in the basement membrane. There is also damage that is produced by uh, the osmolar damage produced by this uh, conversion of the glucose to sorbitol, creating osmotic damage in the blood vessels. Okay, this chronic damage, chronic exposure to glucose, to uh, these compounds will produce a, a specific type of lesion that is called hyaline arteriosclerosis. Don't confuse arteriosclerosis with atherosclerosis. Atherosclerosis is simply accumulation of ateroma under the endothelium. This is a damage of the artery wall, okay, because of the increase in, in proteinaceous materials that harden the artery walls, okay, that will affect the efferent artery wall more than the afferent. That will produce obstruction, increased glomerular filtration, Hyperfiltration, that is what we attack with the ACE inhibitors, trying to prevent the action of angiotensin 2 on this area. Okay, and that will delay, at least delay the damage. So what, uh, what are the events that occur okay, besides this damage of the hyperglycemia? There is a, an expansion of the mesangial cells, proliferation of the mesangial cells, something that is common to many of these conditions. Okay, notice that this is induced by the hyperglycemia. There are other uh, chemicals, inflammatory cytokines, okay, some that stimulate the increased production of matrix, extracellular components, and that will form a classic lesion that appears in diabetic nephropathy, okay, that doesn't appear in other forms of nephrotic syndrome, that is called the Kimmel-Steel-Wilson nodule. Okay, in fact, this condition in the past was called Kimmel-Steel-Wilson nephropathy. Okay, they changed the name to diabetic nephropathy, so everybody has cleared what is that. There is a thickening of the basement membrane because of the disruption of the podocytes. 
and then we have the sclerosis of the glomerulus hardening of these uh, arterioles, okay, of these glomerular capillaries, because of this permanent excessive intraglomerular pressure that we try to reduce with the AC inhibitors. Okay, and at the end, there is going to be a reduced GFR. Remember, it starts with the normal or even increased GFR, the hyperfiltration, and then it's going to have a progressive decline. So these are the, this is the representation of the stages. Okay, there is a table at the end that shows this in more detail. Okay, at the beginning, we have a normal or increased GFR. show the, the damage that appears in people with diabetic nephropathy. Notice that in the center of the glomerulus, in what we call the mesangium, we have the proliferation of the mesangial cells, we have the hypertrophy of these cells, we have the increased extracellular matrix, okay, and we uh, can see uh, that lesion in a biopsy, and this is the classic uh, known as Kimmelstein wilson nodule. Yeah, so here we have the pathogenesis for you to analyze it, the connections between the different uh, parts. And what is important about this slide here, okay, is the that you have clear what stages have micro and what stages have my macro or overt albuminuria, gross albuminuria. Okay, stages one, two, and three will have a microalbuminuria. And remember what that means, that we don't detect that with a urine dipstick. Don't forget the urine dipstick detects him. It's looking for hemoglobin, not red blood cells. So a positive urine dipstick for blood can mean hemoglobin or myoglobin. For example, in the case of a patient that has a rhabdomyolysis, they are going to have a release of myoglobin from the muscle. Okay, and that can be detected in the urine. The patient will have a dark urine because myoglobin is also a pigment, positive for blood. But when you analyze the urine under the microscope, well, I don't see any red blood cell here. So positive for blood in the absence of hematuria that is likely to be rhabdomyolysis. Okay, and also, imagine a patient that is in stage three. They have the, the GFR very low. Okay, they have, a, they have a very low GFR, and they, they go to a health fair, okay, and they have a urine dipstick. Oh, you're okay. 
I'm okay. Let's move on. Okay, so. Hypertension appears everywhere. Well, there are uh, more complications, you know, that appear on the fourth, fifth stages. Okay, in the PowerPoint of uh, endocrinology, you have more details. There you have the hyperkalemia, hyperphosphatemia, the metabolic acidosis that appears. And notice the amount of years, okay, that will pass. Okay, if we wait for detecting albuminuria in the urine dipstick, the patient is in stage four. Notice how many years after, okay, the, 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 the condition, 15 to 25 years, for this to be detected in a urine dipstick. Reduction in the oncotic pressure. Oncotic pressure is what maintains the, the fluid inside the blood vessels. I'm going to go back to this in the next presentation. Okay, in this part, we are going to be talking about some electrolyte disorders and some acid base disorders. And consider this just an introduction. We are going to be talking again about this in clinical medicine, more detail. So just try, okay, we're going to try to understand the basics here. Okay, electrolyte disorders uh, typically present in the setting of other conditions, okay, or as a complication, or maybe are the finding that tells us that something is wrong and we need to investigate what is the cause. Uh, we are going to be starting with uh, the disorders of the sodium balance. Okay, there you have a. Sometimes when we read this, sounds a bit uh, weird. For example, disorders of the water and disorders of the sodium balance. Notice that hyponatremia. Okay, is a disorder of water balance. Okay. What are the dis uh, we tend to think disorders of the water balance, we tend to think too much water or too little. Well, that is actually a disorder of the sodium balance. Okay? Notice hyponatremia and hypernatremia are actually disorders of water. We have either too much or too little. Okay, so the amount of sodium that we measure in the blood is either low or high. Okay? And the disorders of the sodium balance are hypovolemia or edema. For example, when we have hypo, uh, hypovolemia, it's because we have too little sodium. Okay. Or edema is when there is too much sodium that is associated with the water retention. Of course, there are other causes of edema, as we mentioned before, the hypoalbuminuria, the albuminemia. But when we are studying this, in the context of water and electrolytes, okay, that even though it doesn't make too much sense, that's the definition. Now, hyponatremia is one of the most common electrolyte disorders. Okay, it's one of the most common. And typically, typically is caused by inability to suppress ADH. Okay, inability to suppress ADH or what we call syndrome of inappropriate ADH secretion. Okay, we can't suppress ADH when the osmolality of the blood is low. 
okay, we are going to have this hyponatremia. Kidneys are going to fail okay, to excrete water, so water, free water is going to accumulate, leading to a dilution of the sodium in the, in the blood. Okay, so it's not that we are losing the sodium, it's that we are gaining water. It's the most common cause. Of course, we have to, assert, uh, to do a, a, a good investigation that is not easy. We are going to start introducing today how to do it, and we are going to develop it more in medicine. Now, excessive water intake, can it produce hyponatremia? Typically, it won't, okay, at least in healthy individuals, okay, because we start drinking water that is going to suppress ADH, and we are going to urinate that excess water. Now, there are some pathologies, for example, psychotic patients that have primary polydipsia, psychogenic polydipsia, which are, they are able to drink excessive amount of water, okay, amounts of water, okay, and will, the, 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 the kidneys don't have time to eliminate the excess water, so they develop hyponatremia as a result of this. And we are going to mention other causes, for example, beer potomania, or drinking too much beer. Okay, it's exactly like drinking too much water. But beer doesn't have too much uh, sodium. Okay, so people may develop hyponatremia. Uh, people who only uh, have a diet that we call the tea and toast diet, that contain very low amount of solutes, okay, that also can produce hyponatremia. But it's not a very common cause. Okay, we are going to try to understand. When we have a patient with hyponatremia, okay, we have several steps in the workup of this patient. Okay, I put there a table, we are going to go back to that in medicine, as I said. First of all, we have to make sure that there is a true hyponatremia. Okay, we have to measure the osmolality of the blood. Okay, normally the osmolality goes from various change according to labs, etc., from 275 to 290. Some labs tell you to, uh, 280 to 295. Yeah, but we have to measure first the osmolality of the blood to see, to see if this is a true hyponatremia or not. For example, if the osmolality of the blood is elevated and we have a hypertonic hyponatremia, okay, we need to understand that this increased osmolality may be due to hyperglycemia. It's a value that we are going to have. Okay? Or maybe due to a treatment with mannitol, okay, that will increase the osmolality. What happens if we have a lot of sugar in the blood? That sugar will attract water, okay, so the sodium is going to be diluted in that water that the sugar is attracting. But it's not a true hyponatremia in this case. Okay, then we may have normal osmolality of the blood from 280 to 295, or the values that appear here. That is called pseudo-hyponatremia. Okay, that can be produced by excessive triglycerides or people having uh, something that we call paraproteinemia, presence of monoclonal uh, or intravenous intra immunoglobulins for treatment or monoclonal antibodies like in the case of multiple myeloma. Okay, so that is not hyponatremia. Now, when patients have a hypotonic hyponatremia, so the osmolality is low and the sodium is low, that is a true hyponatremia. And that is the one that we have to 
continue investigating. Okay, for example, there are different causes. We are going to try to understand how to determine. Okay, it can be excess water intake, like the examples we mentioned. Example, psychogenic polydipsia, ecstasy. Remember, people tend to drink a lot of water. Okay, and marathon runners that they are sweating and they are taking water, water, water. Maybe they are not taking, like not replacing the, the fluids. If they, they, the solutes, if they do, they are not likely to develop anything. Or decreased water excretion. That means retention of free water. Okay, elevated ADH low GFR, low solute intake, different things may produce this. Now, once we determine that the patient has this uh, true hyponatremia, we have to try to consider causes. Okay, notice that here we have a couple of slides that try to explain the different causes of or mechanisms leading to this hyponatremia. Some of them are characterized by having an elevated ADH activity. Okay, for example, any condition in which the effective circulating volume in the blood vessels is reduced, hypovolemia, low cardiac output in heart failure, for example, or excessive vasodilation shock, all of this is going to lead to an increase in ADH. That's a normal response. That is an appropriate production of ADH. Or sometimes the production of ADH is inappropriate. Okay, it's not due to hypovolemia or shock. Okay, in that case we call it SIADH, but ADH is going to increase even though it is inappropriate, not appropriate. Or, for example, people having low cortisol levels. Normally, cortisol, when it's in normal values or elevated, suppresses ADH and sends negative feedback of cortisol. Okay, so if there is a lack of inhibition, ADH is going to increase. So don't forget this in your patients that may have an adrenal crisis, okay, hypocortisolism, people who stop taking corticosteroids just because, okay, without the proper okay, titration down. So these conditions are going to increase ADH. ADH is going to increase the water retention, and sodium is going to be diluted. Now, there are other conditions that produce hyponatremia that have nothing to do with the elevated ADH activity. For example, any condition like that has a reduced GFR, acute or chronic kidney failure in the late stage, and stage renal disease. Okay, the kidneys are simply not working, and water stays in the body. Remember one of the characteristics of AKI, or end stage renal disease, is oliguria, or anuria, no production of urine, so this urine stays and dilutes the sodium in the, in the body. And then we have uh, people who have a low solute intake, the tea and toast diet, okay, uh, people who don't take uh, salt, you know, beer, protomania. Okay, sometimes for the kidney to work properly, it has to have a, a, a job to do. Okay, if you don't provide sodium to the kidney, the kidney is unable to mobilize the water. Okay, normally we take, as the note says, between 600 and 900 milliosmoles okay, of uh, solutes 
Okay, the, the main sources are the proteins. Okay, urea, salt that we put in the, in the food. Typically, carbohydrates don't contain solutes, so the untoast diet. If someone takes a diet that contains only a 200 milliosome of a, any of solutes, the kidney doesn't see the need of eliminating water because the kidney eliminates water to eliminate the excess solutes that we have. Okay, so that will produce a hyponatine. Now, when we make the differential diagnosis, one of the things that we consider okay, is the urine osmolality and the urine sodium. Okay, remember, we have our patient with low sodium. We determined that the osmolality was low so in the blood. So this is a true hyponatremia. Okay, then we have to investigate what is the cause. For that, we are going to look at the urine. And look at the urine osmolality and look at the urine sodium. For example, people with primary polydipsia take more water than solutes. They are going to have a low level of ADH. This is not of the group of elevated ADH activity. Okay, they are going to eliminate a water that is very, very, very diluted. Okay, they are going to have a urine osmolality that is low, less than 100 milliosmoles per kilogram. Remember, this is one of the conditions that we have to use in the differential diagnosis of diabetes insipidus. Okay, diabetes insipidus, either central or nephrogenic, has low urine osmolality. And then we have to do the water deprivation test to see what happens. And then we have the conditions that have elevated ADH activity, appropriate or not, as a free water retention, they are going to have an elevated urine osmolality. Okay? That's the difference between SIADH and diabetes insipidus or primary polydipsy. Then we have medication, for example, thiazides. Thiazides block a channel that is a sodium chloride co-transporter, also known as thiazide-sensitive NCC, sodium chloride co-transporter. The blockage that thiazides do increase the uh, excretion of sodium and potassium more than water. So in that case, what is useful is the urine sodium, more than 20. Okay. Oh, this is happening because of thiazides. What is that? There is elimination of sodium and potassium more than water. That's why it produces hyponatremia. Okay, we are retaining water and eliminating more sodium and potassium than water. Okay, and that explains the question that the student was asking about the why thiazides are used for the treatment of SIADH okay. of diabetes insipidus. Okay. And then we have hypovolemia. Okay. Remember hypovolemia? We produce pre-renal AKI. That is characterized by activation of the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. So aldosterone retains sodium and water, but also we have ADH that retains only water. Okay, so there is more water than sodium retained. Okay. And well, in that case, since we are retaining sodium, the urine sodium is going to be below 10. Notice that. 
parasites eliminate excrete sodium, while in the case of hypovolemia, we absorb sodium. That's why we use the sodium level in the urine to determine this is diuretic or this is hypovolemia. Okay? And we are going to stop here and have a break. Okay? Let's have a break until 11.10. Okay, there you have different causes of SIADH. And typically when we have a patient with SIADH, which is one of the most common causes of true hyponatremia in our patients, we have to rule out strokes, okay, infections, so, uh, most importantly brain infections, meningitis, encephalitis, uh, some medications, infections, HIV for example, Many other infections may produce that. Yeah, I think that list has a, a, a big mistake because I don't see lithium there. They forgot it. Now, we have our patient that has hypoosmolality, okay? It's a true hyponatremia. Now, to further our differential diagnosis, we have to consider the volume state of the patient. If the patient dry or if the patient with excess volume, okay, then we divide the causes into different groups. Okay, some appear more commonly in people who are hypovolemic, low JVD, okay, that dry mucous membranes, oliguria, the skin is dry. Okay, people who are having diarrhea, vomiting, or people who have uh, any condition that produces third spacing like pancreatitis, cirrhosis, a small bowel obstruction, the fluids are in the small bowel, people taking diuretics, most common there is uh, lasix, loop diuretics, okay, also uh, remember osmotic diuresis will lead to dehydration, uh, people who have hyperglycemia, hyperosmotic, uh, hyperosmolar state, okay, glucose or manitol diuresis that we use for people with elevated intracranial pressure, okay, mineralocorticoid deficiency, so lack of aldosterone. Remember, lack of aldosterone will make us lose sodium, okay, and sodium is going to take water with it. And if you move to the right, we have the hyperbolemic patient, patient that is edematose, elevated JVD, JVP, Okay, we may see peripheral edema as well. There we have some uh, renal or extra-renal causes. Okay, acute kidney injury or chronic kidney disease, nephrotic syndrome, edematous patient, and also patients with congestive heart failure and cirrhosis as well. Cirrhosis may produce a generalized edema and also the third spacing in the ascites. And our typical patient, okay, the one that uh, Classically, 
is the concern for us because if the patient is hypovolemic or hypervolemic, we understand why the patient is hyponatremic and we know what to do with them. But then when the patient is eovolemic, there are so many things there. Okay, we have SIADH, we have Addison's disease. Remember in Addison's disease, we have deficiency of cortisol and also aldosterone. So the cortisol doesn't inhibit, it doesn't uh, inhibit the ADA, so ADH increases. Okay, hypothyroidism as well may be in this list. The importance of measuring the thyroid hormone DSH in our patients. Then we have primary polygypsia, photomania, the ones we mentioned before, and these medications. Okay, you have desmopressin, oxytocin. Oxytocin is very similar to uh, ADH. The treatment with oxytocin uh, during uh, delivery, for example, SSRIs, opioids, carbamazepine, NSAIDs, ecstasy. There you can include also thiazides. Thiazides will produce a euvolemic, okay, hyponatremia. Okay, the one that produces the hypovolemic tends to be furosemide, the loop diuretics. So I included this here, okay, but this is going to be more useful for medicine, but I wanted you to have it here. We are not going to be using these uh, in exams, but you can have an idea. And there you have the what we were talking before about the urine osmolality, urine sodium, okay, to differentiate between different uh, patients. Notice that you have the different steps. First, you measure osmolality, and you divide it into isotonic, hypertonic. Shouldn't there say hypertonic? What is, what is hypotonic? I didn't know. <laughs> hypotonic. Hypertonic. Okay, hypotonic. My patient is hypotonic. Okay, uh, when we determine that the patient has a true hyponatremia or a hypotonic hyponatremia, then we look at the volume status. And you have again the, the, the things that we mentioned before. What is that when your patient is hypovolemic, okay, we are going to make sure the urine sodium to determine what is the cause. Okay, if the urine sodium is low, we think, okay, the kidneys are not the ones who are losing the sodium. Okay, then we have to suspect extra renal causes. When the urine sodium is elevated, then we think renal causes. The kidneys are the ones who are wasting the sodium. And the uvolemic, in that case, we use the urine osmolality. Okay, that we mentioned before, the urine osmolality is low. We think in low solute diet, T and toes, psychogenic polydipsia. Okay, if it's elevated, we have their SIADH. Okay, we have the hypothyroidism and deficiency of cortisol. So that tells you. Imagine you're in an OSCE. Okay, you have uh, your patient that comes with some uh, confusion. Okay, typically sodium disorders tend to produce more mental alterations. Confusion, lightheadedness. Okay, different degrees of altered level of consciousness. 
And you notice that your in your physical exam, the patient is neither dehydrated or uh, with a over overload of volume. The JVP is normal. The blood pressure is normal. Okay, they may be urinating more or less normally. Okay, not too much or maybe too much depends on the condition. When you can give your differential depending on the volume status. Okay, the patient is euvolemic. What is your differential? You have psychogenic polydipsia, you have SIADH, you have hypothyroidism, glucocorticoid deficiency, low solute diet. Of course, if you ask the patient, how's your diet, and they tell you normal, that is not in your differential. Okay? But these are the things that you have to do. What tests are you going to order? Well, I'm going to order a urinalysis. I need the urinosmolality. Okay, I need the DSH. Uh, private function tests. I need cortisol levels. When is it uh, uh, better to, to measure? Well, you can either do a collection, 24-hour collection, or measure it at 8 a.m. in the morning. Salivary cortisol, for example. That's the way, but this is more, remember, for medicine. What is the next step? What is the next step? Okay, so if the next step, if the patient is euvolemic, it's urine osmolality. If the patient is hypovolemic, it's urine sodium. Okay. The patient has heart failure, was treat the heart failure. We know what is the, the reason. So the manifestation will depend on how acutely or chronically this presents, and also the treatment. Okay, if someone has a, a hyponatremia or a hypernatremia, this applies also to hypernatremia, that develops slowly. Our body adapts, the neurons adapt, okay, they increase or decrease the number of osmoles inside the cells to accommodate and try to maintain the cell volume. So a chronic hyponatremia will have subtle abnormalities, maybe some vague headache or problems concentrating, gait difficulties, things that are difficult, for example, to actually get when a patient has other conditions. Imagine a patient with Parkinson's disease that also that develops a hyponatremia. How, how do we know that the patient has something new or is part of their disease? Now, acute hyponatremia is going to present different. Okay, headache, important headache, decreased attention, the different degrees of confusion, lethargy, disorientation, nausea, vomiting maybe. Our body trying to get rid of this excess water and not letting us drink in any more water. Okay, in more severe cases, vomiting, seizures, okay, there's gonna be decreased level of consciousness, even coma, brain herniation. If we have brain edema, the, the brain is gonna herniate. Okay, the tonsillar herniation, different types of herniation, or even death. Okay, simply the, the neurons swell. Okay, because of the hypotonic extracellular environment water enters inside the neurons and they swell. Okay, the increase in tracranial pressure okay, will uh, lead to, to this herniation. And then we are going to have the findings if they are hypervolemic or hypovolemic. That tells us about the volume status, blood pressure, JVP. Now, hypernatremia is all the contrary. Okay. Now we have a patient that has a failure to replace water losses. 
Okay, typically hypernatremia doesn't produce too many issues in someone who can easily drink water, has access to water, and has a normal thirst mechanism. It's not going to be a very common finding as hyponatremia is. Okay, some people may take excess salt, for example, drinking uh, seawater, okay, or sometimes mistakes that we can make, okay, administering hypertonic saline solution to someone who doesn't need it. Okay, in this case, the movement of water is going to be the other way. Now we are creating a hypertonic extracellular environment, so neurons are going to shrink, water is going to leave the cells. Okay, decrease intracellular volume or shrinkage of these neurons. So we have here a, an idea of more or less the different mechanisms. Notice that if you look at this, uh, at the four great uh, mechanisms by which hypernatremia may occur, one of them is sodium overload. Okay, then we have extracellular water chip into the cells. Then we have decreased water intake and situations in which the water loss is greater than the sodium loss. Okay, sodium overloads, uh, overload may be the negligence, hypertonic uh, saline, okay, or salt poisoning, someone eating or taking too much salt or drinking seawater. In mind, someone may be desperate if there is no water, and the only thing is drink seawater, they may drink it. Then we have situations, that is not very common, in which extracellular water shifts into the cells, leaving the sodium outside. For example, electroshock induced seizures or extreme exercise. That is something that you're not going to see probably. Then we have some hypothalamic lesions that will affect the thirst mechanism. They don't feel thirsty, they're not going to drink. Or uh, decrease access to water. Okay. Decrease water intake, obviously, is going to increase the sodium. And then we have diabetes insipidus, diuretics. Okay, diabetes, uh, mellitus, vomiting, sweat, burns. If the water is unreplaced, it's going to lead to a greater water loss than sodium loss. Okay, these are the conditions that can produce hypernatine. So the manifestations, again, are going to depend on if they are acute or chronic. And they're going to be very similar to hyponatremia, lethargy, weakness, irritability. People may have twitching, seizures, coma. Okay, for example, when there is a very rapid increase in the sodium, if we inject hypertonic saline, for example, during surgery in the veins, instead of to clean the area, goes to a vein, okay, or people who take a lot of salt, there's going to be a very rapid increase or decrease, in this case, in the brain volume. The brain is shrinking. That may produce a rupture of the cerebral veins producing intracerebral hemorrhages. Okay, and may lead to different uh, degrees of irreversible damage. Okay, there are also, uh, for example, if we have a rapid correction of the hyponatremia, okay, that's going to lead to this uh, pontine myelinolysis, okay, that may manifest. Uh, when, they, when, they, when these changes occur acutely, we can correct them acutely. Okay, we don't have to wait okay, to correct them if this is occurring in less than 24 hours. 
But when these changes are chronic, we have to correct it very, very slowly. Okay, uh, I was hearing a nephrologist talking the other day. He says that he doesn't, it doesn't matter what is the cost, he doesn't increase the sodium more than eight milliequivalents in 24 hours. They slowly, slowly, slowly take your time to replace the sodium in the case of, high, of hyponatremia or lower the sodium in the case of hypernatremia. Because the neurons, remember, made adaptations. And they took, it took time for them to create these. It either create osmoles or get rid of the osmoles. They took several days to do that. They're not going to do that in one second or in one minute. Get rid of or take more. Okay, the symptoms will depend on the, uh, on the level of sodium. Okay, for example, severe symptoms and the sodium is more than 158. Okay, and if the sodium gets to 180 milliequivalents, it's a very high mortality rate. Okay, and when this is chronic, it is not likely to produce too evident uh, symptoms. Now, potassium, potassium levels, when they vary, okay, they tend to affect more the heart, okay, the, the conducting system of the heart, and also the muscle uh, contractions rather than the level of consciousness. Notice that potassium can be also low, can be elevated. And one common problem that we find typically associated with uh, diuretic treatment is hypokalemia. Okay, maybe caused by decreasing intake, but that is not common at all. Even some people, some nephrologists say it is not possible because almost everything that we eat has potassium in it. Okay, eating just half a banana per day gives us the potassium that we need and even more. Okay, so food normally has lots of potassium Okay, that is very rare. Another cause of hypokalemia may be translocation into the cells, okay, in exchange for hydrogen. If there is an alkalosis, we need to take hydrogen out of the cells, and we put potassium into the cells. So hypokalemia develops. Or it can be urinary losses or GI losses, that is more common. Diuretics, okay, or for example, excessive aldosterone, we have excessive aldosterone. We're going to retain sodium and eliminate potassium. Or GI tract losses, diarrhea, okay, sweat. We may, people who sweat excessively or may lose uh, potassium that way. Notice that the kidneys can adapt. If we eat too little potassium, okay, the kidneys adapt. Okay, normally, we take between 40 and 120 milliequivalents. Okay, and the kidneys may reduce the excretion to only five milliequivalents per day. Okay, so rarely decrease intake is the problem. Okay, now what produces an increased potassium entry into the cells? Okay, what is the structure that we have in the cells that takes the potassium into the cells normally? That is the sodium potassium pump. So anything that stimulates the sodium potassium pump will take more potassium into the cells. And that is done by insulin beta adrenergics, okay, or alkalosis. Okay, will also produce the, the shift. 
that's why when people have hyperkalemia, we use insulin and albuterol okay, to take the potassium back into the cells. Of course, we give the glucose too. Okay, we are giving insulin. And there are some cases, for example, excessive exercise in a very hot climate, okay, that people sweat 10 liters or more per day. But mine, okay, I don't know anybody that sweats 10 liters per day to develop a, hypo, a hypokalemia. But there are people who maybe are crazy. Now, we have here a diagram that shows the different ways Okay, that we mentioned before. Okay, if you go to the center, you have hypokalemia. Notice that there are three arrows pointing to hypokalemia. One is increased potassium entry. The other is increased potassium excretion. Okay, by by the kidney or maybe also you have the loss in the skin, etc. And we have decrease down here, decrease potassium available for absorption. And that is the dietary intake that we said that is not very common. So focus on the ones above. Okay, what can produce increased potassium entry? You have several conditions like albuterol and insulin, like we already mentioned. But we have other two that we haven't mentioned yet. For example, refeeding syndrome, someone who's been starving for a while, or maybe doing a fasting for a while, and so then start taking glucose. Glucose is gonna trigger a very important increase in insulin, and insulin, okay, will take potassium into the cell, so we have to be very careful. Instead of taking glucose, it's better to take some fruit, you know, that has potassium in it. Then we have a, any condition in which there is an increased red blood cell production. Let's say someone who has a severe anemia B12 folate deficiency or iron deficiency anemia, and we start giving iron B12 folate. And they start suddenly making more cells. These cells will take potassium into their cytoplasm, so there can be a drop in potassium. What about increased renal secretion? Anything that increases aldosterone. Okay, some people may have a renin-producing tumor, reninoma, or some people may have hypovolemia increases also the renin angiotensin aldosterone system, can be diarrhea, diuretics, laxatives, okay, can be vomiting any situation with hypovolemia. So these are the base, uh, basic three mechanisms, but remember, only two are really important clinically speaking. And then you have more causes, if you want to have them organized. There you have some medications like amphotericin B. Chloroquine. And here we have an explanation of the mechanisms that is, uh, I consider this slide very important because it's very associated to the acid-base balance disorders. Okay, we need to understand how our body works, how the body responds to different situations, and find an explanation for findings that our patients have, and that will give us the idea of how to fix it. Okay, here we have the GI losses. Notice that we are dividing the GI losses into upper and lower GI losses, vomiting and diarrhea. 
Okay, what happens when we vomit? We are losing hydrochloric acid. Okay? This loss of hydrochloric acid will lead to hypokalemia through the loss of potassium through the kidney. How's that? How vomiting may make the kidney eliminate potassium? I thought that we lost the potassium when we vomit because the gastric juice contains lots of potassium. It doesn't. Remember, potassium is an intracellular cation. It's not extracellular. We don't vomit potassium. Okay? So when we vomit, we develop a metabolic alkalosis. Okay? We are losing hydrogen, and we need to produce more gastric juice, so we eliminate. We are going to pump more hydrogen to the, to, the, to the stomach, so we are losing it from the blood. Okay, when we develop a metabolic alkalosis, now the kidneys have to eliminate bicarbonate to reestablish the pH of the blood. So we are going to have a lot of bicarbonate in the tubules that the kidneys cannot reabsorb because it's too much. There is going to be a lot of bicarbonate in the distal nephron. We are eliminating. Bicarbonate is an anion that will attract cations. Okay, and that doesn't allow the reabsorption of potassium. Potassium goes away because of the increased negative charges in the urine. At the same time, we have hypovolemia, and we are going to have increased aldosterone, renin angiotensin aldosterone, and aldosterone is going to eliminate potassium as well. And notice how vomiting produces the hypokalemia by making the kidneys eliminate potassium. Now, when we have diarrhea, Okay, that is going to be a different mechanism. When we have diarrhea, we don't develop al uh, alkalosis. We tend to develop an acidosis. We are losing bicarbonate. Okay, the, the intestinal juices contain lots of bicarbonate that is produced by the pancreas, that is produced by the gallbladder, and that is produced by the mucous membrane of the GI tract. Okay, we are going to lose. We are going to develop hypokalemia and bicarbonate loss. So people tend to develop, and we are going to see this in more detail when we study the, the acid-base disorders, okay? When we develop these acidosis, and we are losing bicarbonate, that is an anion, okay? Our body, in order to reestablish the amount of electrical charges, the electroneutrality in our fluids, needs to reabsorb chloride, which is another anion. Okay, that's why people develop what we call a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. And this is very related to what we are going to study later. Okay, so that is what, is what we call a normal anion gap metabolic acidosis. Why normal anion gap? Because we are, we are reabsorbing chloride. Okay, the anion gap is calculated by using the sodium, the bicarbonate, and the chloride. If we don't, uh, if we have this measure anion increasing in the blood, we are not going to have a gap when we calculate the anion gap. So we're going to see this later in more detail. Now, these are the urinary losses, typically due to increased aldosterone activity, but can be also due to diuretics. 
okay, aldosterone typically stimulates a channel that is called the epithelial sodium channel. Okay, so we eliminate uh, potassium and we uh, retain sodium. So we reabsorb sodium. When sodium enters into the blood, the lumen becomes negative. Now we have the chloride there. We left the chloride. We don't absorb the chloride. And that will promote potassium secretion following these negative charges. Now, potassium losses also may be due to polyuria. Remember, diabetes mellitus, primary polydipsia, may take lots of potassium with it. Okay, we have this increased urinary flow. There is no time to reabsorb it. And diuretics typically increase the distal delivery of potassium, distal nephron delivery. Okay, induce polyuria, produce depletion of polyum activating renin angiotensin aldosterone. Okay, that is more uh, typical of loop diuretics rather than thiazides. There you have it, you wanna, this is more for pharmacology. Okay, there you have the, the places where different uh, diuretics act. For example, spironolactone, plerinone, which are potassium saving no? diuretics, okay, they block the action of aldosterone there. We save potassium. Okay, you have there the amyloride triantering, blocking these sodium channels there in the collecting duct. Now, hyperkalemia, okay, uh, talking about the physiology, what happens when we eat something that contains lots of potassium? Typically, we take all the potassium that is in excess into the cells. Okay, we leave very little in the blood. Okay, the liver, the muscles, we process it. Okay, this is facilitated by insulin and also beta-2 other energy receptors, increase the activity of the sodium potassium pump, and we take the potassium into the cells. A little bit of it remains in the blood. There's a mild elevation of the potassium after we eat something. Okay, and that will stimulate aldosterone. Remember, the stimuli for aldosterone are renin and potassium. Okay, so hypovolemia, renin, aldosterone increases, and Potassium increases after a meal, for example. Aldosterone is also going to be released without renin angiotensin, just aldosterone. And that enhances sodium reabsorption and potassium secretion. That's interesting. We eat fruit and our body retains sodium. Is fruit good to eliminate sodium? Don't tell that to you. You will get very confused. Now, when we have elevated potassium, what we have to think, first of all, it is pseudo-hyperkalemia. That's the first thing that uh, if a patient is totally asymptomatic, healthy, high potassium, oh, that's a bad technique, draw in the blood. When we take the blood sample, 
or when we manipulate the blood in the way to the lab or in the lab, red blood cells may get broken and the potassium is released into the serum and we find elevated serum potassium. But it was not in the serum before. It was inside the red blood cells. So repeat the test. Okay, and do it properly. Don't do it fast. Okay. Now, uh, what else can produce a, an increase of potassium from the cells? Metabolic acidosis. We put the hydrogen inside the cells and take potassium out. You know that insulin takes the potassium into the cells. Lack of insulin takes the potassium out of the cells. So ins insulin deficiency, okay, hyperglycemia, hyperosmolality, all of these combinations will lead to intracellular potassium depletion. Okay, potassium goes to the extracellular compartment. Okay, and when you study the treatment of diabetic ketoacidosis, you are going to see that it's important to be very careful. Potassium may be elevated, but it's not actually elevated. Because it's elevated in our sample of, of blood, but at the same time, this potassium is going out through the kidney because of the hyperdiuresis. Okay, so we are going to administer insulin, glucose, and also, remember, we have to administer potassium. Okay? Everything will depend on the specific condition of our patient. So if beta-adrenergics lower the potassium, okay, beta-blockers, for example, propanolol, labetolol, okay, will interfere with the potassium uptake, so will increase the potassium. So what patients shouldn't receive propranolol? Okay, those that have hyperkalemia. Okay, it's going to get worse. Remember, making new blood cells or making new cells lowers the potassium. Well, the contrary is when we have an increased tissue breakdown, hemolysis, rhabdomyolysis, tumor lysis, patients receiving chemotherapy, radiation, we have breakdown of cells. That will produce hyperkalemia. Okay, exercise, and there are uh, some genetic conditions, uh, congenital conditions, hyperkalemic, periodic paralysis. Okay, that is not very common. There is a video on YouTube of a guy that was put a camera while he was sleeping, and you can see how it looks like. Red cell transfusions on medications like Digitalis. Digitalis blocks the sodium potassium pump. Okay, if you block the sodium potassium pump, it doesn't take the potassium into the cells. It stays outside sometimes too much, and we give a higher dose than what the patient needs. Now here we have a hyperkalemia, and the kidneys don't eliminate potassium. Here what we have is the lack of aldosterone. Okay, notice when you study one thing, hypo, you are studying at the same time hyper, because it's the contrary. Okay, reduce aldosterone, low renin, low aldosterone, or reduced response to aldosterone, aldosterone resistance. For example, excessive potassium sparing diabetes, chronic kidney disease, acute kidney disease. Here, any situation that leads to a reduced delivery of sodium and water to the distal nephron. For example, when there is hypovolemia. Okay, or any situation, 
heart failure, cirrhosis, decrease effective circulating volume, we are going to uh, eliminate less potassium. Now, what is the more common type of patient that will have this? Patients who have oliguria, so they are not eliminating anything, and also are releasing more potassium from the cells, trauma, burns, chemotherapy, okay, or are receiving any therapy that makes them to increase the release of potassium from the cells. There you have the, the process uh, organized. And we are going to stop here. Okay. That's for the next step. And Professor Rivas is coming now to talk about something. He just texted me. Oh, no. No? It's not coming up. <laughs> Meet is good, meet is bad, meet is good, meet is bad.